Welcome to the re-release project of the Keeping Things Alive podcast, which is the republication of episodes that were originally recorded and published between 2016 and 2020 out of Western New York. My name is Laura Evans. I'm a former environmental lawyer, planner, and nonprofit staffer. I also wrote a book called Silent Seasons, Chasing Sustainability Through the Law. The Keeping Things Alive podcast is here to explore the opportunities and challenges as we all live together on this beautiful, living, and interconnected planet Earth. Hello, this is the sixth and final interview of the Keeping Things Alive podcast collection that focused on the Rise Up for Climate Justice campaign in 2015 in Buffalo, New York. And I have done a collection of interviews with the leaders of different groups that participated in this campaign. Normally in Buffalo, a lot of the different nonprofit groups are focusing on their own issues. But at this moment in 2015, the various leaders got together and organized and all created these larger events around the issue of climate justice. So it was a wonderful experience to participate in and now to get to know the people that were responsible for this event um, has been a really wonderful learning experience for me. So now this last interview is with Agnes Williams. She's a member of the Seneca Nation and they are an Indian tribe that is part of the Iroquois Confederacy. Um, We'll talk about this in the interview, but Iroquois is actually a French term, while she and her people call themselves the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. And this, uh, the Haudenosaunee democracy is actually the basis for the United States government, although as we will discuss, the role of Haudenosaunee women in their government was completely left out of the United States framework. So... Agnes, she graduated from Syracuse University. She received a degree in social work, and she has been a social worker through her career. But she's also been deeply involved in activism. She's the founding mother and board president of the Indigenous Women's Network, which has land in Austin, Texas. She is also involved in work at the United Nations. They established human rights for Indigenous people through a declaration in 2007, so it's celebrating its 10-year anniversary this year, and she's also been participating in a Standing Rock support group that meets in Buffalo every Tuesday at Burning Books, so she's been deeply involved in the water protectors of the Missouri River and Standing Rock. It was an honor to sit down with Agnes, speak with her, listen to her story. I've always known that the history of the Haudenosaunee in Western New York is full of conflict and suffering post-colonization. But hearing about it from Agnes really gave me a visceral sense of how this difficult history continues to impact all of us today. There was also a lot of really great um, information and stories about how the Haudenosaunee Um, do ceremony, the way that they govern themselves, and the way that they treat the earth, which I think we really need that perspective right now more than ever. Um, One last thing, I apologize for some background noise. It was a beautiful day and the window was open, 
Hopefully it won't be too distracting. And please enjoy my interview with Agnes Williams. Hello, I'm here today with Agnes Williams, and we are going to get right into her experiences with activism and the 2015 Rise Up for Climate Justice campaign. So Agnes, when you first meet people, how do you explain to them who you are and what you do? I'm a Seneca, excuse me, I'm a Seneca mother. Um, I was a daughter. My mother passed away a year ago. Mm. She was 94. Um, I have three daughters and I have seven grandchildren and I belong to a clan and I'm a member of the Newtown Longhouse in um, near North Collins at the Cataraugus Indian Territory of the Seneca Nation of Indians. I grew up there. Uh, I went to college at Syracuse University. And uh, my family has always been involved in politics. And my father in 1962 was the president of the Seneca Nation. And it was at that time that the Kinsua Dam was built that um, took a lot of the land from the Allegheny Territory, which is uh, under our same government, elective government, and uh, removed uh, all the Senecas uh, from rural communities, uh, cultural strongholds into two suburban communities. So when I was 10 through 12, we were going through this um, kind of hopeless struggle of trying to hold back uh, the Kinzu Dam and to retain our land. And I think that was really the origin of my activism because my father was the president at the time. What kind of work did you do at the time and did your father do to um, to fight that? Well, most, um, you know, in the United States, the development of the first and the second world is dependent upon the underdevelopment of the third world, wage workers, and the undevelopment of the fourth world. When we talk about fourth world, that's Native nations, indigenous people, that are really uh, rural people that are on uh, territory that we, we were put on, or we, we still have, original territories and uh, trust territories that we still have that uh, hold a lot of uh, 70% of the natural resources in the United States. So the relationship between Native people and the uh, federal government and also the state, you know, we have a specific relationship here in New York State, um, has always been the transfer of land title. Um, and the difference in our values, the principles between land ownership and property ownership, and ours as indigenous peoples as uh, equality, and that concept wasn't really part of who we were, part of our culture. Has that um, relationship changed over your lifetime, like from when you were younger until now? Have you seen differences, or has it remained about the same? Well, our uh, Native people in North America, as a result of the historical genocide, were, uh, we were going extinct until the 1900. Mm-hmm. So we only have a little over a f- 100 years of physical uh, recovery from the, uh, first of all, disease. You know, 70% of the population in North America was uh, 
killed off by, you know, even before they saw non-native, by communicable diseases uh, from uh, Europe that, uh, you know, were the result, uh, the biological expansion from the poor living conditions, you know, um, eating where they they took a shit and, mm-hmm. you know, just all of that and all those diseases, you know, the plagues and all of that. that and we weren't subject to that. So when the um, explorers first came here, they brought all of those germs with them and that biological expansion that had been going on in Europe as a result of, of the uh, civilization that was developing there. So we lost, you know, 70% of our population died from communicable diseases. And then it was uh, uh, when the critical mass of people that got here uh, reached a critical mass, then it became war. And, um, you know, because of uh, superior weaponry from, um, you know, guns, we didn't have guns. Uh, We were uh, wiped out that way. And then after that, it became removal, removal from our lands. And then uh, after the removal period, uh, we had the reservation period uh, where we were put onto reservations. And then we went through another, uh, from the reservations, we had the boarding school period where off the reservations, we were moved into uh, schools run by the war department uh, primarily just to um, uh, be domestics or to, you know, work the land and uh, had to do all the work. Um, and those boarding schools lasted for a very long time till uh, up to the 50s when the policy of the... These were all policies of the United States government. Mm-hmm. And, and then by then they were into this policy of, again, relocation out of the boarding schools into the urban areas. So by the 60s, uh, the 70% of the population that was rural, lived on reservations, was living in urban centers. Mm. They were moved direct. They were relocated directly out of uh, boarding schools into uh, urban areas. Uh, the Bureau of Indian Affairs had uh, employment programs and uh, relocation programs to help uh, the uh, couples. And usually, in you know high school, they uh, different tribes would get together. So you had this whole blending of 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 the diverse populations in North America and, um, and a, very, a big mixture of um, Native people, you know, different tribes. So that today, uh, as we're going into, so that, so that was like the 60s, 70s, maybe like the third and fourth generation of, of uh, urban Indian people, you know, there's been a lot of intermarriage, there's been a lot of differences. And then the government... Uh, had put on a, uh, a another policy of genocide, which is the blood quantum, which said if you weren't a quarter Indian of a federally recognized tribe, and then you were not considered um, eligible for the treaty, for the treaty reparations. Now the treaty period uh, came after the the relocation period, because um, most of us weren't. Uh, militarily defeated we were there was a treaty period where we have these treaties between our sovereign nations and 
uh, the new, uh, like we had treaties between New York, it was New Amsterdam, mm. and uh, then it, when the federal government was formed, then it was treaties with the federal government. And then in the, 18, in the 1700s, uh, with the Interstate Court Act, us uh, Interstate uh, Course Acts, they, uh, the federal government defined, you know, what the states did and what the feds do. So everything had to go through the, through the feds, any kind of land transfer. Yet in New York, um, the rise of the corporations were already starting in terms of the land. So you had business people and uh, corporations, the Holland Land Company and the Ogden Land Company that um, in New York State were allowed to uh, take Indian land and sell it to settlers. The particular, uh, the railroad itself in Salamanca actually was the one that was selling land to non uh, Seneca's in uh, Salamanca, and uh, they actually had to go and get a federal law to uh, stay in Salamanca because that is, you know, part of our our uh, original territory. So here in New York, we have a special relationship because we're still on our relig- original lands, mm-hmm. Aboriginal lands, and uh, you know we've been here for a very very long time, and. Um, a lot of traditional people will say, you know, we we were here before uh, the settlers came, settler society came, and and we're going to be here when they're gone. <laughs> yeah. So we have a very long history, and within our own communities, um, we have a very uh, rich culture of uh, original, what we call original instructions and teachings, uh, different uh times in our history we were sent these original instructions the first one was the creation story the second one is the story of 12 brothers and that story of 12 brothers is actually the uh our relationship to the environment oh so we have a very old old tradition and ethos about um how we are to be in this world and how we are to interact and then could, the third you, one. Oh, sorry. Can yeah, you I just said uh, there's two more. Yeah. There's two more after that. Um, okay. In 912 AD, mm-hmm. um, we received the message of the great law of peace. And um, that was when the Iroquois, what the French called the Iroquois Confederacy, we, we call ourselves Haudenosaunee. And that Confederacy, which was five tribes, we formed in what is now known as New York. Uh, Southern Ontario, New York State, Southern Quebec. Mm. Um, so, and then after contact, um, we were um, devastated by alcoholism, and we received a, a sobriety and well-briety message uh, from Handsome Lake. So the Senecas today, you know, we are the followers of the Handsome Lake. So our traditional society follows that. So the second teaching um, really is a, a long story about um, our relationship. The creation story, the first one, is really our relationship to the universe. talks mm-hmm. really about, you know, as people, where we came from and how we got here. And then the second one, the story of the 12 brothers, really talks about our relationship to our environment. And it was at that time 
that we received our songs and our ceremonies that coincided with 13 moons, and they were done on a regular basis uh, with the primary purpose of giving thanks for everything that we had, first acknowledging everything in and about us, and then giving thanks for everything that we had. And then our prayer is always the same. It's that life will continue within this creation as originally instructed. So it's very elaborate. And uh, the principles in each of those teachings are the same, but the specific story is a different time and different place and different characters, but they're the same principles of um, how we are to conduct ourselves, um, how we are to, to live here within this creation. And I always like to bring that up because it's always about, um, you know, we're the original peoples of this land and we were put here by, the, we call the great mystery, some people say God, uh, we were put here uh, in this place. You know, we didn't go to any other continent. We're, we're not settler societies. Uh, we didn't invade anybody else, and uh, we didn't go and murder and kill other people. Um, there was war between the different communities. It was a different kind of war, and uh, usually what it was uh, more of a colonizing war that people would become known as uh, Senecas. So they say for us, our territory went from uh, the Hudson Valley River across uh, southern Quebec, southern Ontario, down to the Ohio River Valley, and then it became the territory through there of the Shawnee and, and other tribes. But for a very long time, the Sene as Senecas, we colonized a lot of other tribes that were here, the Wyandots, the... the uh, um, the cat face, uh, just just a lot of, and once they were colonized, uh, they were allowed to speak their own language, but they were known from then on as Senecas. And then we ourselves weren't really known as Senecas till the Great Law, uh, before the Great before the Great Law teaching, and um, and it was at a certain point in history when we started be calling, and that's when we resided in the Finger Lakes region. And uh, we were re forcibly removed by the uh, George Washington, Clinton, Sullivan campaign. And uh, when we left the Finger Lake region, we came to western New York. Oh. So we have a very long history here. Um, our traditional yeah. teaching, our original instructions... Uh, our are really our, our environmental ethics that we've had for thousands of years. Yeah, that's amazing. Thank you for all of that history because that really lays it all out there. Um, at least in a short <laughs> in a short summary. <laughs> but you really covered a lot that I didn't know. So thank yeah. you. Well, the I, thing is, we're so invisible, and yeah. and there's a that it's really been a policy of the United States to to uh, create this invisibility uh, because we were uh, always uh, meant, the federal government policy has always been to try to change us mm. and make us into uh, Americans. Mm -hmm. We're not Americans. Mm -hmm. We're Haudenosaunee people. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm a Ongwaitwe in my language. That's what means the Seneca. Mm. I'm Ongwaitwe and my Indian name is 
Gahegas. So I have an identity that's separate from uh, American. Yeah. I have another question for you is how have you and the Seneca people passed down the environmental ethics and the stories like are there particular ceremonies that you do or are you telling these stories to younger generations and keep them going or how do you maintain the environmental ethics that you've well we have an oral tradition we didn't okay. really have a written tradition how does so that work with the Astoria 12 brothers that was when we received our songs and our ceremonies so when the settler society first came it was very um we questioned, you know, because uh, people, the Christians didn't dance. Mm. Because everything we do is like in singing and dancing yeah. and has to do with uh, our relationship to our environment. Yeah. So those we had these 13 ceremonies that are pretty elaborate. Um, today we uh, practice, there's 21 longhouses. Mm. Um, each longhouse has, uh, there's... 50 chiefs, 49 clan mothers, uh, faith keepers, and the people, the adult pe women, the adult men, and all the children. So all of those groups are identified separately and have counsel with each other mm. on different things that come up. So uh, the ceremonies are, are really um, our resistance to the industrial uh, settler society colonial way of life mm -hmm. um, when we got the great law in 12 AD we accepted the great law of peace and we buried all our weapons of war against one another and we formed the confederacy of the Senecas, the Cayugas, the Onondagas, the Oneidas and the Mohawks and that is what's known as the Iroquois Confederacy which was studied by Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson and which the U.S. government is modeled after, but the U.S. government leaves out the role of the women and the clan mothers. What is their role? In the Confederacy, the clan mothers, all the children belong to the clan mothers. The clan mothers choose the chiefs. Uh, the chief titles, we still, have the, we still use the same names, have the same names, those 50 titles. Um, 49, there's only 49 clan mothers because the 50th is Tadadaho, who is the head of the Confederacy. And the story of Tadadaho is another really long story, but he, uh, at the time of when we started the Confederacy, uh, he was the worst of the worst, and he became the best of the best mm. as a result of the woman's touch. It was Jigonsa, say, the woman came, and they said his hair was like snakes, and she combed the snakes out of his hair because he was so destructive and and such a vile person. But he had been raised without a mother. Mm. So the significance of the woman in our tradition and our culture and in our government is is really a spiritual thing. So Tadadaho made that change. So that position exists, but he doesn't have a clan mother. He, that chief gets picked by the other chiefs. Mm. And uh, so we have a ceremony called the condolence ceremony. Um, when the chief 
is picked after long discussion of all of the groups, the children, the women, the clans. Uh, the chiefs are condoled by uh, are condoled by the opposite, not our own tribe, but an, another tribe. Once that process is through, then a person becomes the chief, and the woman, the clan mother, his clan mother. Uh, puts the horns on his head. He has a headdress, when, and the horns symbolize that he is a chief. Mm. And um, if if he he cannot be he cannot have blood on his hands, he cannot uh, you know have killed anybody uh, to be a chief. He has to be a person of peace. Mm. And um, if he does change his ways and he does become destructive, then uh, the clan mother has the ability. There is a process to remove him. Wow. And the clan mothers, once you're a clan mother, you're always a clan mother, and there is no way to remove a clan mother. Hmm. You're a clan mother for life. So the woman's role is uh, really the foundation of the Confederacy, foundation of the great law of peace. And uh, the symbol is this pine tree which has those five needles on it because mm-hmm. that's the five tribes and it has white roots that extend in four directions uh, to anyone that wants to come under the protection and under the law of the great law uh, of peace. And it's it goes in all four directions. So the invitation is always out there for ev- anybody and everybody to become part of uh that change to becoming a peaceful person. So that was after the environmental stuff. What happened with the environmental stuff, um, our creation story, you know, it's hard to tell one without the other. The creation story, (laughs) you know, when we talk about our creation story, um, it starts in the sky world. And um, there's two different communities. And there was a, sister and brother and the sister had two children and they hid their children away from the rest of the community to keep them pure because uh, they were noted as children of destiny. The uncle had a dream about what their role was to be in their life and what they were going to have to do. And then in a neighboring community, there was this beautiful tree of life that everything that the people needed was on that tree and the person that was the guardian of that tree he had the same dream that the uncle had had so they both knew that the day would come when uh the um when he would marry the the woman and they would and this whole story of creation uh the tree would start to uh, die, which would be, uh, and that the sky world would have to be renewed within this world. Mm. So um, a lot of people, anthropologists, ethnologists, astrologists, <laughs> different people, <laughs> talk about indigenous pe- or native pe- Native American people as uh, Palladians. So what does that mean? Palladians, uh, Pallades in the sky. If you look directly. Mm. straight up in the winter you'll see them but in on the milky way there's these 
different constellations coming off. And we're on, our solar system is on the end of one, and the next one over is Pallades. Oh, I see. So um, star people today, you know, say there's like six different DNAs and that we all come from these different star systems right. to this creation here. And we as Native people, they say we're Palladians, mm -hmm. and, um, which kind of makes sense to our creation story because uh, once the daughter mated with the guardian uh, and became impregnated, and then uh, she fell, he uh, uprooted the tree as it was dying, and she fell through the hole, and she fell for a very long time. And uh, then she, and as she fell to this, world she it was just all water and uh, she fell on the back of a turtle mm. so you'll hear a lot of people refer to north america as turtle island mm. which kind of comes from our I teaching see. as well because if you look at it kind of looks like a turtle okay yeah I'll talk so that. she had her child and everything uh the uh, animals the birds cut caught her and rested her on the back of the turtle, the giant sea turtle. And uh, the muskrat was the one that was able, finally able to bring some earth up. And the earth started to expand. And she had her child and she had a girl. And then the daughter had twins. Mm. And then the twins started to create everything that we have here. And that's part of our creation story. So... Some of the the father of the da of the twins was an earth being that was already here, and um, they called him Turtle Man, and he lived under the water, and uh, he impregnated the daughter, and they had the twins. So that was the first intermarriage, mm, the I sky see. being and the earth being, and. And then they had these two twins. And the twins were, one was uh, creative and made beautiful things. And one was jealous of the other one and was had a crooked body. And when he was born, he came out his mother's side and, and his, killed his mother mm. instead of coming out in a natural vaginal way. So as they grew, the grandmother took care of them and... Uh, as they grew, there was conflict between them because the uh, one twin was uh, would see what the other would do and be, become jealous and try to do it, but his stuff always would mess up. So they would say, well, you look at the rose, you know, the one twin would make a rose and the other twin would put thorns on it. Uh. So we kind of have like Darwinisms, you know, survival. There's always something that's kind of doing it so it really the whole story for us really describes the nature of this world yeah and it definitely impacts how you treat the world that you live in too. right mm -hmm. so and it talks about a lot of stuff that was here and and uh and then before um the the right-handed twin left he gave specific instruction he made the humans and he, he gave specific specific instructions to the humans to be stewards and caretakers mm. of this land and of this world, this creation. And that's where it started. That's the principles, you know, the environmental stuff. And so that was our responsibilities that if we 
practice good stewardship, then we, uh, when it's our time to pass into the spirit world, that we would join the um, the other twin, and uh, and everything, and we would know everything about the sky world because he went back to the sky world. So things being the way humans, being the creatures that they are, they become forgetful and lazy and they started to neglect their responsibilities of stewardship over the creation. And um, the uh, twin, watching everything that was going on, decided to visit and come back and to give another message. And... um, that time, uh, it was a message of uh, 12 brothers, and that was more specific. Instead of just having, say, like a metaphor would be like steaks on the tree, you know, everybody wouldn't have to even cook them or anything. They'd just eat them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they'd have fruit on a tree where they would have to do something. They'd have to pick them. So there were more things to do, and those things that we have to do are those ceremonies and then we have to learn our language we have to learn our songs we have to learn our dances we have to make our outfits we have to uh we have medicine societies and all these uh 21 lung houses and we have to use uh, everything in the environment you know to doctor our people and take care of those there's everything that's put here uh we're told everything that's here in this environment it has a purpose, and it's all put here. It's something that's going to help us, because mm-hmm. that's how much our our Creator loved us. Yeah, this gave us everything that we need here to take care of ourselves um, through illness and and anything else. Until uh, and He did tell everybody that our days here were numbered. Mm-hmm. Um, we we were only going to have a certain numbers of days here, and then uh, as uh, the only thing, when the man and the woman were together, the only thing that was going to separate them, he said, is the difference in the numbers of days that we have here. Hmm. So that the man and the woman were meant to be together. Um, so Yeah, I see. Yeah. That's so that, like you know, the, yeah. those ceremonies and those 13, like we had, like I said, now today, mm-hmm. uh, it's an oral tradition. Everything's been passed down. Um, the names, all the ceremonies, the songs. And um, so when you ever see uh, Haudenosaunee people, or what the French called Iroquois, uh, get together, that's what you usually get. You get songs, singing and dancing. Yeah, that's <laughs> So we have social songs as long as, you know, as well as we have ceremonial songs. Yeah. There's actually like four different languages. You know, we have our ceremonial language. Uh, mm-hmm. We have our everyday language, and we have our uh, modern language, you know, because we needed a word for TV and hot dog, you know. Uh, so, yeah. you know, it's it's there's different uh, languages as well. Yeah. So with your with your life and your journey, where did you um, where did you start to be interested in activism and educating other people? Um, outside of your community yeah well it was really my father because my father wanted to go to college he never got to go and then he ended up being a leader in our community and trying to fight off the federal government he actually went to washington dc wrote a letter and got a letter back from president kennedy 
um, we uh, the Seneca Nation, they put together an alternate route for the Kinzu Dam. The Kinzu Dam was actually supposed to stop the flooding of the Golden Industrial Triangle in Pittsburgh, mm. which it never did. Uh. Um, the company that uh, ran the hydro plant, uh, the Kinzu Dam, uh, have re- have since left because it became unprofitable and um, they were talking about taking it down. So it was kind of one of those follies. And during mm. that era, when all those dams were being built in the late 50s and 60s, there's you can look on just about any kind of Indian reservation. It's it's like um, it's like the job. It was the big idea to give jobs for the Army Corps of Engineers. Mm. So the government dreamed up all these projects on Indian land, and most of them have not been, again, it's another example of a development project that doesn't benefit, uh, you know, indigenous native people. It only benefits the first and second world because Mm. we didn't get electricity or we didn't get really any, uh, we did get some payment out of the Kinzu Dam. They did some housing. We got the education fund, and I went to school. So I went to college, and when I went to college, I um, became a social worker. And uh, one of the, in the 60s, um, you know, we had the Vietnam War, and uh, they in the school of social work, I was in, my class was the first class to have a five-year program. So if we did four years of undergraduate work, we could get our master's in the fifth year. Mm. And they also had a community organizing curriculum, Sololinsky, and um, I I love Syracuse. I got such a good education at Syracuse. Yeah, what was it like there at that time? Oh, we were all in the streets, you know, like um, they had the lottery and the draft. Uh And um, I worked in the dining hall. You know, I had to work to, to, to pay for my food. And so in the dining hall, the uh, the guy that got, uh, they went by your birthday with the draft. So I always remember us all sitting, watching the TV when they were giving up these numbers and who was going to be number one. Mm-hmm. And the poor guys that got number one, you know, they put it on their dorm. <laughs> and then when they'd walk in the dining room, everybody would chant, you're number one, you're number one. <laughs> oh, <laughs> but, you know, it was just so heartbreaking because nobody ever thought, uh, and and we all went to the streets, you know. That was that was a really big activist time because were, were you to, doing work in Syracuse or did you go other places too? No, we were. I was in school full yeah, time for okay. five years straight. So I was living there and then home on the weekends. Mm. And um, but Syracuse itself was really a, a hotbed of politics, and um, we just you know everybody was protesting the Vietnam War. And uh, protesting the draft, you know, because primarily it was all these, everybody that, you know, failed out of, flunked out of college were going to get drafted. Yeah. And it was just a really uh, frightening and dramatic time for for young people. Right. And uh, the millenniums now, you know, they don't know how easy they got it. (laughs) Right. Yeah. They don't have the draft. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know yeah, what kind of differences do you see from back then until till now and i guess the the current political climate what do you see the differences well like i said with my dad john f kennedy mm-hmm. was killed mm. and that was a really big thing yeah in the southwest uh kermagee was one of the big 
uranium mining companies. Okay. Uh, Lyndon Johnson was from Texas. Yes. His wife, Lady Bird, she was the major stockholder in the Kerr McGee. Mm. So they were primary, the primary pushers of the uranium mining that so, Kerr made in the so Southwest. That's so interesting because. I- as I told you before, I lived in Austin, Texas, and right. there's the Lady Bird Johnson Wildflower Center, and there's just these beautiful quotes from her about conservation, but it's interesting to hear her, her the reality. financial reality. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, the reality of it. I didn't know that. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so when, um, when JFK was shot, mm-hmm. and then his brother Robert was shot, Martin Luther King was killed. Mm-hmm. You know, we lived through all that. Right. And every time something like that happened, people were in the streets. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, it's like yeah. boom, 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 four or five times. And that's a lot. That's a lot. Mm-hmm. And uh, growing up in that kind of atmosphere and era, you know, it's just kind of like uh, you're – alert system is heightened mm, to be on sense. all the time. And the, at Syracuse, um, I learned to be a critical thinker, which was, you know, having a good education. You know, I wasn't, you know, the times and the teachers we had, everybody was, it was really good. You know, we had one of the best political science schools, the Maxwell School in the country, mm-hmm. and just great. Great things were happening. Buffy St. Marie came and sang at the um, arts school there. And uh, Jethro Tull, Janis Joplin. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, there was the music. There was the politics. It was just, it was was our time. Yeah, it was electrifying. Yeah, yeah, it was really a big time. So that, you know, it's just kind of like, you know, what else can you be but (laughs) activists? Right. Coming out of that kind of era. Okay. But, you know, I think for me personally, it was really, you know, when I was 10 and 12, it was the Kinsu Dam. Because yeah. we all knew it was wrong. And and we saw um, the Army Corps of Engineers came in and burned people's homes down. Really? Burned them to the ground. Oh, my gosh. To remove them off the land. Mm-hmm. Wow. Eminent domain. Yeah. So and that, that that continues. So the today. industrial society in yeah. Pittsburgh wouldn't get flooded. Mm-hmm. So they and uh, you know we've always been the human sacrifice for industrial society, mm-hmm. which kind of just goes back to the economic paradigm about the development. The development paradigm that uh, America lives in is that it's all the development goes into the first and second world, mm-hmm. which is primarily Caucasian people. Mm-hmm. And the third world gets to do the work, which are the people of color. And the fourth world, you know, we just we're just indispensable. You know, we're we we don't count at all. We don't get any of the development. Yeah. So, which is the same thing with the West Valley nuclear plant uh, waste disposal right. yeah, was put up in the that. same era. Uh, 1964, the plant was opened. And uh, the same time here in Western New York, up near um, Niagara Falls, Love Canal, all yeah. that was going on. And um, the Manhattan Project with, you know, this. The the thing about the nuclear is um, the industry itself, 
really did not have the science developed to contain the waste. Yeah. And they always said, oh, we'll do that later. Or the thinking was, dilution is the solution. I'll just pour a little water on it and we'll be okay. And uh, that's the thing that we're working on now to really dispel. People think you can just pour a little water on chemicals or whatever, oil, and it's going to be okay. And it isn't. Right. But it's been, uh, in America, it's been drilled into people's heads for so long. Um, The coal slurries, you know, you got people cutting off mountaintops in West Virginia. Montana, we had this uh, coal burst there on the reservations, you know, the development of that and all that dirty water coming down. The Missouri River in the 70s used to be the only unpolluted river in the United States. And the Standing Rocks in particular raised their children to, to keep that water from, to keep that river from becoming unpolluted. I mean, this is the way they raised their children, you know. Yeah. To protect that because they were the stewards. Mm-hmm. Because that's what their creator told them. You got to take care of the water. You got to take care of the Missouri River. Mm-hmm. So this year we had standing rock. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. Um, it's a little off of the trajectory, but not really. I I've been really inspired by all of it and think it's really. I don't know. I'm excited that it's happening right now while I'm in the middle of the work that I'm doing. So, what have your experiences with standing rock been, and have you been involved? Yeah, we've been doing a lot of support here. We're in um, in Buffalo. Every Tuesday night we meet at the 420 Connecticut, which is the Burning Bookstore. Ah. And uh, we started a Standing Rock support group, uh, which is part of the uh, Nekanesa, which is uh, Friends of the Ongoitwe. That's a, a support group for Native people's issues. Um, we've had that for maybe about four years now, and uh People were asking for some kind of support, you know, a uh, group like 10 years ago. And I'm like, oh, God, you know, can I do what? <laughs> we're busy over here doing West Valley or, or, or you know, doing stuff at home. So um, I was really important, you know, that this uh, call has, has really come out um, in 1979. So I, I graduated from Syracuse in 1973, 74. I worked at St. Lawrence University, and then I moved out west to California in 1975. Mm. And in 1973, uh, the Oglalas uh, had declared themselves an independent nation, Mm. independent from the United States. And there was a huge reaction by the federal government. Armed tanks were brought in, and Indian people were killed, shot and killed as a result. Um, it was an armed occupation, and it lasted for 73 days. Wow. So the Where Oglala, was that? In South Dakota. Ah. Next to, see, there's uh, all there's Lakota, Nakotas, and Dakotas. Mm. And the, at that time, uh, well, before that, in the Black Hills, uh, when the gold was discovered, uh, the U.S. Treasury is really the gold that was on in the Black Hills from Indians. Mm. So that was an appropriation of our natural resources. Mm-hmm. And how that happens and that notion started 
with the doctrine of discovery and with the papal bulls of the 15th century and the explorers. And we actually just showed this movie uh, at Buffalo called uh, Unmasking Domination uh, on the Doctrine of Discovery. We showed that the other night. And it is available for people to see. Okay. Um, I'll write up links to things you talk about so I can add that link too. So it just gives you the whole, it's it's based on the work of Stephen Newcomb, who's a wordsmither, and he's a Lenape Shawnee, and he's done a, a lot of work documenting the historical uh, growth of this idea that um, uh, the settler society said all we had was a right to occupancy. We didn't own the land. Mm. And, and that's been the notion right along. It's the notion today for... Uh, eminent domain, like with the the pipelines. Yeah, the yeah all of them, and the Northern Access Pipeline right here. So that that whole notion about um, in Indian law, they talk about it as plowed depth, and as Indian nations and original peoples, we've fought that right mm-hmm. from the beginning, and our and our relationship. Um, so. So in 73, we had Wounded Knee and the Oglalas took the stand because they were trying, the federal, the government was trying to give a settlement to the uh, Sioux Nation, the Great Sioux Nation, which is Dakota, Nakota, Lakotas, all the different bands. Lakotas and the Oglalas were the one. They were led by uh, uh, Fool's Crow, Chief Fool's Crow. And at the end of the Wounded Knee occupation, he says, we can no longer go to the federal government and ask for them anything. They're not going to do anything for them. We have to go to the United Nations. We have to declare sovereignty and go nation to nation. And that was when we went to the United Nations in 1977. Woodeny was 73. Uh, from 73 to 1975, there was a civil war on the Pine Ridge Reservation, 500 unsolved murders. The wow. elective government, uh, goon squad, uh, police force, fighting with traditional people that didn't want to sell the land, take the settlement. Um, by 75, the uh, land was owned by six traditional families that didn't believe in selling the land. Most of the people had sold their land. So therefore, as an elective government, the majority wanted that settlement because they didn't have anything. And actually, Pine Ridge and still is the poorest county in the United States. Mm. So the poverty there is just overwhelmingly bad. Wow. So you can see how the situation developed. So when they, in 1975, those six, the women, again, the women from those, the grandmas from those families, heard about the American Indian movement that was, working with alcoholics in the streets of St. Paul, Minneapolis, because uh, drunken Indians were getting uh, picked up by the police and murdered and killed in the police stations. And so the American Indian movement began, and they would go around the streets and pick up the Indians, and the drunk Indians, and take care of them. Mm. And they started other projects for housing and just generally trying to take care of the people in... Um, the grandmas in 
Pine Ridge found out about it, and they invited the American Indian Movement to come to Pine Ridge. They did. They set up camps. One of the camps was set up for Dennis Banks, and uh, that's where Leonard Peltier was on the day that Dennis Banks had a trial, and all the camp was emptied, all the men except for three adult men and young uh, teenagers and women. Uh, two FBI agents drove into the camp shooting, and uh, as a result, two agents and two Indians were left dead. And wow. Leonard Peltier is serving uh, the ballistics on his gun never matched the, the uh, killings of the FBI agents, but they put him in jail for the last 40 years anyway. And uh, he's been in serving life sentences. And... Um, the two Indians that died, nobody was ever prosecuted for their deaths. Uh, there's really no justice uh, for Indian people in the United States. Right. There's no trial by our peers. We're always judged by non-Native people. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that was that was pretty dramatic. Yeah. <laughs> in the right. 70s. <laughs> yeah. So by 1977... The uh, American Indian Movement formed the International Indian Treaty Council. We had an office in San Francisco and New York City. And in 1977, went to the United Nations with the Hopis, the Lakotas, and the Haudenosaunee led the way. Mm. We got to the United Nations. They wouldn't let us in the door. And they said that this is a nation-state organization, the United Nations. And as indigenous people, we are populations, and we have no human rights, and we have no seat at the table. So since 1977, indigenous people have gone to the United Nations for over 30 years to gain access to sitting at the table of the United Nations. Yeah. And uh, they work every year. There's... uh, now it's called a permanent formament. It was called a working group before it was just mostly everybody going to the Human Rights Convention every year and testifying yeah. about abuses. Um, but when they went in 77, I think the real significant part about it, and um, it was Orrin Lyons, who was one of our faith keepers from Onondaga, went and was one of the diplomats. And uh, when he got he says, we are here at the United Nations as indigenous people because... We, because the earth, the animals, the water, the air, the fish, the birds are not represented. Mm -hmm. And we as indigenous people are here to represent them. Wow, yeah. And so for the last, it's been 40 years. They've been working on the Declaration for the Rights of Indigenous People. They didn't think it was going to pass till 2030. 2007, there was a crack in the nation-state wall. Hmm. Uh, Tanya Frisner, who was an Onondaga lawyer, uh, did some diplomatic work with the Chinese. It was hard with the Chinese because of Tibet, you know, the Tibetans and the human rights stuff. And the Africans, some of the African nations weren't real keen on giving their tribal people human rights. Mm -hmm. 
But once China agreed, uh, there were only four countries left that opposed the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Mm. And can you guess who those were? I can guess one of them. (laughs) (laughs) The United States. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) New Zealand, Australia, Canada. Canada, okay. Wow. Where all of this minerals and uranium and coal was coming from. Yeah, and still is. Yes, yes. So they didn't vote for it, but it got passed. Okay. And all the four countries have since said they were going to sign on to it. So in the UN, it goes from... So what, what the significance of that is, is that we were no longer considered populations with no human rights, but we were considered peoples with mm. human rights. So it That's took till 2007... Mm-hmm. for indigenous people to be considered human beings. Wow. Yeah. That is a that is a dramatic and intense mm-hmm. story, but thank you for telling it. So I it was really, you know, the told. Oglalas and they kind of led that with the traditional people. Mm-hmm. Um in 1983, Janet McLeod was a follower of the Hopi prophecy. She was an activist in the Northwest and was involved in the fishing rights struggle. Mm. And uh, in the Hopi prophecy, it talks, the the Hopis were given the uh, mandate to go to the United Nations three times and give a warning warning message about the destruction of the earth and how people had to change their ways. Mm -hmm. And they they did that. And also in there, it talked about that uh, because life is threatened at this time, uh, the the women were going to rise up. Yeah, And I didn't think I was going to see it in my life, but she gathered us up in the 80s and we formed yeah. these organizations, the one in Texas. Yeah. Indigenous. Before that, in 1979, uh, let's see, 77 went to the UN, 78 in California, we organized the longest walk. There were 11 pieces of anti-Indian legislation. We walked from San Francisco to Washington, D.C. and defeated the legislation. When we got to D.C., we had 30,000 people with us. That's amazing. And then in 83, we formed the Indigenous Women's. But meanwhile, after 70, we were all going to the UN every year. Mm. And so they formed a working group. And now it's become the permanent forum. So this year we celebrate 10 years of the Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Mm. We've been recognized as human beings for 10 years now. That's congratulations <laughs> thank you I'm sorry wow <laughs> so it's kind of like it's kind of like big you know it's yeah really it big. is big that so, is a very big deal yeah it's just it's so the so the hopi the hopi prophecy also talks about the four worlds that we're in the fourth world we're at the end of the fourth world and that if we don't change our ways that the earth itself will purify itself yeah the earth is going to be fine yeah we're the ones that aren't going to be Right. Make it to the next world. Right. And the fifth world, we're going to be going into, there's this change is coming about, and we're going to be going into a fifth world, and only the people that are prepared, and prepared, what we're told in our, in the Hopis told their traditional people is that we have to know our language, we have to practice our ceremonies, mm-hmm. we have to sing our songs, we have to do our dances, we have to know... Yeah. No hookups to 
the industrial world. Right. That's something that I really enjoyed because I do want to take us to the 2015 Rise Up for Climate Justice campaign and the amazing role that you and the Seneca Nation played in all of that. I The thing that I've just been so disappointed in environmental law and policy, and it, it all feels so industrialized, but to really, this campaign, there was such a soul to it and there was a lot of ceremony and music and dancing and you were a big part of that um so thank you um but also can you talk about that time and how you got involved and maybe an experience that you remember from either the the rally in niagara square or the gathering ceremony where there was a feast um I'd just like to hear about your perspective on that. We actually um, had all these organizations that we worked with. And then here in Buffalo, we had American Studies Department. Oren Lyons was one of the diplomats to the UN. He was one of our teachers there. And um, we had started a group here called the Indigenous Women's Initiatives. And our the administrative assistant in the um, American Studies Department was June License, and she worked with a church called Riverside Salem, and she's also the partner of Roger Cook. Ah, yes. So when uh, the squeeze came at American Studies, because we were doing a lot of community work, that was one of our prerequisites for students to be part of the department and the courses, they had to do community work, activism, you know, any kind of projects that benefited the community as well as their studies at UB. Well, we got, got eliminated from the uh, system um, June, and there, UB never hired any women. So then it was June's idea to start the Indigenous Women's Initiatives. And we became a project of Riverside Salem United Church of Christ. Uh-uh. So Roger was the one that kind of has always, you know, been doing the environmental work and you know he's he's had the earth what is that called he was doing back those days uh, where you sign on to this earth thing and he was doing all that I didn't talk to him about that but I'll have to I'll have to ask (laughs) well you know Roger was the environmental person so yeah um so we've been there you know at Riverside Salem for 20 years late 90s and um the indigenous women's initiatives and primarily it's um, Haudenosaunee people uh, stateside uh, some Canadians we're getting more Canadians now like the department changed into transnational studies and most of the people that the Indians that are there now are are Canadians so the Canadians are are coming up pretty strong Um, so we had uh, a part of our language requirement was for to get our uh, master's and doctorate was the learning our own language and uh, our test was we had to be able to do a ceremony from the beginning to end in in, in our mm-hmm. own language so you know it, it was all tied together because all of these um one of the one of the elders at the the longhouse had said to me he said uh he said where did all those warriors go when we took on the law of peace where do you think they went and i said i don't know he said he said they, they became the medicine societies, they became the lacrosse players, they became the faith keepers, they became the clan mothers, the chiefs. 
and they became the people that have the continuity, the cultural continuity in those 21 longhouses that we've had for thousands of years. Thousands of years we've been doing this, and we've been there, and we're still here doing that. Yeah. And because we do that, we we maintain that balance, that environmental balance in this society. It's not just for us. It's for everybody. It's for everybody. Mm-hmm. So as long as we do those things, if we cease doing those things, then that is going to be the end. And that's what they were saying in the Hopi prophecy as well, that we all have to, as activists, we all have to go back to our communities. We have to learn our traditional ways, learn our ceremonies, our songs, and we have to practice them because we have to prepare ourselves for the end of the fourth world. And in that preparation, we have to unplug from America and the industrial society, and we have to become sustainable communities. So as the Indigenous Women's Network in Austin, Texas, we held four sustainable community gatherings where we went around Indian country and we gathered up all these women that were doing cutting-edge work in sustainable communities solar power, whatever it was, you yeah. know, everything. And everybody was a presenter. Everybody got together, and we all took information, went home, and tried to implement it. As And then here in Buffalo, we do on Columbus Day, on October 13th, for the last 15 years, we've done, uh, and June is, this is her primary, mm. is food, world on your plate. And then they added the names and sustainable communities. So we have workshops, we have keynote speakers, and it's all about um, becoming a sustainable community. Decentralizing, localizing, thinking globally, acting locally, uh, being able to feed ourselves. And out of that, uh, the Water of Life campaign has, has come about. In 1978, on the longest walk, uh, the Japanese came and joined us, uh, June Yasuda. She ended up building a peace pagoda in Petersburg over here in New York. And uh, she's walked all these years for peace because mm. of the bombings in Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Yep. The United Nations named August 9th Indigenous Peoples Day. They didn't change Columbus Day. Mm. but And then here in Buffalo, the Mayor Brown declared August 9th Indigenous Peoples Day. But uh, right now there's a movement about to everybody's being pretty reactionary with the national stuff, politics, and want to change Columbus Day. And uh, I'm always saying, well, let's, you know, let's not, well, let's forget about that. We got our own international stuff going on here. So we're trying to go from this reactionary mode mm-hmm. to a proactive yeah. kind of mode where we really are learning how to take care of ourselves without the multinational corporations. I think that's critical for the environmental movement, you know, in in industrialized society, the people that are trying to change, you know, United States environmental law. Right now I just see all the people that care so much, they just keep reacting and I I really want them to create something new or create something to sustain themselves. So, right. yeah, that that work is critical, and I'm really glad that it's being done. June, at her pagoda, she has lime toilets. Oh, okay. And I just, I think it's such a great 
example because we're trying to dispel this American myth that dilution is the solution. Right. Because they've ruined our water. Yeah. In a lot of places, and they're still planning on ruining it some more. Yeah, I guess people don't understand chemistry, or just if they don't see it, they don't understand it could still be dangerous. But I... I've really tried to eliminate chemicals in my own life and have really seen a huge benefit from that. And But I, I still can't get away from it anywhere I go. Right. So, yeah. People finally got the paper bag thing I just heard on <laughs> NPR at India. Oh, Banned okay. paper bags yeah. in India. So it's good. Like, I mean, plastic bags. Yeah. So I was like, well, oh, right. Austin, Texas has a plastic bag ban. I yeah. was there. Yeah. Um, well... We're kind of running a little low on time, so I wanted to switch over to um, the final questions, I guess. Um, And that would be, where do you experience a world that's dying and then a world that's being born? And that could be in yourself or your own community or the, you know, North America, the entire world. You can answer it however you would like. Mm -hmm. Well, for us as indigenous people, um, as long as we do our ceremonies, there's always that rebirth. Um, you know, we have we go into those ceremonies with a good mind. We talk about a good mind, and uh, we purify ourselves from all the contaminants of Americans' industrial society and all the hatred and the killing. And you know, John Mohawk had said. At one point, he said, I, I just don't understand why they're so mean. Because when uh, the settler society came to the shores, if if we as indigenous people or native people were as bad and as savage as they said, we would have just wiped everybody out. But that's not the kind of people we were. Yeah, We were people of peace, and we welcomed everybody. We fed everybody. And it wasn't until it got to be critical mass that push came to shove and you know the guns were pulled out when mm-hmm. when they wanted something that that we had and that they didn't have so it's like that whole malice and uh why are people so mean you know why do they have to be so mean <laughs> i don't know <laughs> so you know that's one of the i think one of the personal things is it's just like you know really trying to be kind and I mean, I get mean too, you know, I get angry and especially with our younger people, you know, and they hear all this, they find out the history and they're really pissed off, you know? So we have to work very diligently with our young people to teach them about the good mind, which is one of our major traditions, teach them about the great law of peace and teach them about the uh, environmental ethics and and get them to our ceremonies and get them to learn the language, get them to sing the songs, and so that they feel, feel that. And unless they feel that, they're just going to be the American destroyers like everybody else. And uh, so, you know, we have a lot of community work that we have to do this week. We had a lot of things going on in our community. We're doing, on April 22nd, we're doing a water walk. We've done this for about 15 years. Um, We have a water ceremony. And 
the really interesting thing about water, you know, there's this movie out called What the Bleep. And it talks it's a, it talks about the scientists who who did some experiments about the effect of words on water. And he proves that um, different words change the molecular structure of water. Yeah. And, you know, it was so significant to me that, because, you know, as a social worker, you know, I really believe in, you know, working with people and, and, and saying the good words to people. And, um, you know, especially for Native people here, you know, we're always not enough of something. We're always either not enough, you know, or we're too much. Nobody ever gives us the message that we're just right. Mm-hmm. So usually when I do talks or I go anywhere, I always say, well, you know, as a social worker, that's my job. I'm here to tell you that you're just right the way you are. Be- and the way I know this is because the great mystery made you. And the great mystery doesn't make mistakes on anything. So, you know, that whole doing those kinds of things for people. So when we do the organizing, we got this walk on April 22nd. We're going to have a water ceremony at the West Valley plant. We always pray for the water. Uh, the water at the plant goes into the tributaries that run into the Cataraugus Creek. The plant releases, it has pools of radioactive water that it Releases periodically into the creek, doesn't notify anybody. The creek runs through our reservation, and we have very high rates of cancer, and we have an average life expectancy of 54 years old. Wow. So we have some major, major public health Health issues issues. in terms of this radiation that comes through our community. Uh, It runs through our community, goes into Lake Erie, goes into the water intakes for the city of Buffalo, so everybody's drinking that radiated water, but nobody says anything. Mm-hmm. Nobody says, uh, we all go to the quarter store and buy bottled water, most of us that have any kind of awareness. We won't drink the tap water, but there's still a lot of poor people that are drinking tap water. Yeah. You know, and and it's not a good thing. It's not a good thing. Radiation is, is uh, that radiation at West Valley is going to be there for a thousand years. Yeah. And... Uh, so the campaign there is part of uh, June Sun's campaign, Nuclear Free Future. She's been walking for over 40 years for, um, and it's also part of the campaign of Water is Life, which was really big with, at Standing Rock, you know, uh, in the Standing that, Rocks yeah. with keeping that Missouri River sacred. Yeah, I just see it as the difference between fighting for something and fighting against something I, I really the water is life message really resonated with me a lot right. and it and it's just that uh, whole notion of sacredness and that we should be thankful and grateful that everything has been given to us for free here mm-hmm. we didn't have to pay any money for any of this but we just go out and ruin it you know mm-hmm. So it's kind of like we got to grow up and we got to take some responsibility here. America is a very young country. Yeah. It's very young. Maybe yeah. pre middle school age. I don't know. <laughs> Preteen. Yeah. Developmentally, yeah. it's, well, we just, and, you know, Trump is just personifies the whole development of 
maturity of our country. That's where people are at. You know? Yeah. And uh, not all of us, but uh, it's on it's on the adults, the American adults, to uh, to raise good citizens. Yeah. So we have to do it. We have to get out there. Um, we have these two campaigns. Uh, the United Nations Permanent Forum will run from May 24th to, I mean, not May, April 24th to May 6th. Uh, the testimony will be given 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. and then 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. each day, not on the weekends. And it's going to be televised this year. Oh, good. On webtv.un.org. Mm-hmm. Okay. And we're really trying to get people to at least take a section of that and then all of us to have a gathering after May 6th. Uh, we're having a fundraiser at the Indigenous Women's Network building on uh, June 9th. I think it's a Thursday night um, where we want to give a report. So we want to have a couple meetings before that because there's actually like 16 sessions. Oh, wow. Sections. And I know not everybody's going to look at all of it. So anybody that's willing to look at some of it and then for to sit in a couple uh, presentation sessions and so that we can all kind of put together, you know, this is what it is, um, bring up all the salient points so that we can share that with the community. What's even better is to go and sit and participate in the United Nations because I think it's really good, for, especially for the millennials and the, t- the young people in high school to go and experience. Our Salamanca students went two years. The first year they went, they testified on the Kinsua Dam. Mm-hmm. Second year they went was the year of the Doctrine of Discovery was the theme, and they testified on that. So it's a very good experience because once you've gone through that, you can't, your mind opens up. You know, you're open. You you have a world view after that. You don't yeah. have a Buffalo view or a Ashland Street view. You know, you got a world view after exactly. that. Exactly. So it's a really good experience for people to go. You know, what in whatever role, we are having a side event for Ingrid Washington-Watuk. Um She was murdered, disappeared, and killed in Colombia in 1999, and uh, she was at the top of her career she was a chairperson of the working group of indigenous people in the united nations when she was murdered in colombia and we always do an event for her it'll be on april 28th it's at 777 un plaza which is across from the un in the church building there and it'll start at 6 p.m we have a lot of great speakers for that a lot of uh, people come. There's a lot of site events where people that come to the UN, they come and lobby. We're always lobbying for a resolution to make the uh, Declaration of Rights of Indigenous People a a convention. Um, Once it becomes a convention in the UN, then it go then it becomes international law, and the nation states are accountable mm. for their crimes yeah so this is what we've been working for and we're going to be doing it for a while like i said 2007 was a crack in the wall we didn't think we were going to get it till 2030 but um you know it's it's moving and uh i think this whole so those are kind of the major things we have going right now we do i do a radio show at the end on the fifth sunday 
for the network of religious communities. It's on uh, Town Square Media, and uh, it's about spiritual journey. Usually, do an interview, and and uh, it's a half hour show. So we'll be doing that this month as well. And um, August 9th, Indigenous Peoples Day. We celebrate here in Buffalo at, with an event at the um, Historical Society with has the Japanese gardens. The ja- our Japanese friends always come and participate as well. So we have speakers and so we talk about some of our original teachings. We you know, have people come in and share our, our teachings and um, with the general public. And um, and then we do a lantern, Japanese lantern ceremony at, at uh, dusk. So it's usually a, a good... Because uh, they also, August night, is when the um, atomic bomb was dropped on Nagasaki. Oh. oh so, so it's, it's Nagasaki it, Day as well. So yeah, we always so do uh, kind of like the nuclear, the nuclear thing. Right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me. I I learned a lot. <laughs> yeah, I really did. So thank you. I I almost chuckled when you said, "Well, you can uh, kind of just say a little bit about who you are." <laughs> I was like, "Oh." <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to the Keeping Things Alive podcast. My name is Laura Evans, and if you would like more information about me, this podcast, or other work that I care about, please visit www.keepingthingsalive.org.